take time to heal a little bit. And before you put yourself out there in a post soliloquy, ask yourself, is this post gonna be helpful or does it belong in your journal? But I think we have to have some moderation because everyone's hurting. And then it starts to be a cycle of negative energy in a platform where it can be positive. Welcome to season eight of the Design Better podcast. This season, we're doing things a little differently. We're going to address the elephant in the room. The tech industry has seen many rounds of layoffs, and we're talking to Judy and Daniel Wirt of Wirt & Co. about how to navigate these uncertain times. Then we'll jump into interviews with people like Tony Fidel, who co-invented the iPod and iPhone, Kevin Bethune, the author of Reimagining Design, Matt Mullenweg, founding developer of WordPress and the CEO of Automatic, and George Pechnik, the SVP and head of product design at the New York Times. Now we're already looking ahead to the next season, where we're going to air a mini-series on the history of design. We'll include interviews with folks like Lisa Dimitrios, granddaughter of legendary designers Ray and Charles Eames, and chief curator at the Eames Institute. Barry Cates, author of Make It New, The History of Silicon Valley Design, and Paula Schur, acclaimed graphic designer and partner at Pentagram. We want to thank you for joining us on this journey for the past seven seasons. If you're a new listener, we encourage you to check out the back catalog at designbetter.com slash podcast. We're truly excited about where the show is headed, and we're committed to featuring guests who inspire and inform your creative endeavors. Before we get to the show, a few words from our sponsors. With Freehand by Envision, we've built a best-in-class visual collaboration platform used by thousands of enterprise customers, inclusively priced for the whole organization at 50% the cost of Miro and Mural, and now with the Intelligent Canvas, allowing teams to maximize their impact by adding intelligence, automation, and connection to the canvas. Try Freehand by Envision today for free at freehandapp.com. This episode is brought to you by Fable, who make it easy to build accessible, inclusive products. Learn more at makeitfable.com and later on in the show. It's a challenging time in tech right now. Chances are, if you haven't been directly affected by the layoffs, you know someone or maybe many people who have. In today's episode, we're welcoming back Judy Wirt, along with her son and colleague, Daniel. At their executive search firm, Wirt Co., they've guided many leaders through navigating career changes. We discuss the layoffs and strategies for dealing with changes in your own career when the environment is as difficult as it is right now. We'll also discuss what skills you need to cultivate as an individual contributor if you want to advance your career, and the ins and outs of transparency when it comes to salary policies. Thanks for joining us. And we hope it's helpful wherever you are in your career. Judy and Daniel Wirt, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me again. Yes, yeah, great to have you back. So we wanted to talk about what's happening in the industry right now, the software industry, tech industry more broadly. There's just a lot of layoffs that are happening and uncertain economy. It seems like every day I wake up and I listen to the news and there's 
another announcement about some round of layoffs. So I wonder if you could just set the stage and maybe catch listeners up on what's happening in the tech industry right now. Well, I think we're definitely seeing, as you alluded to, companies rounding down from uncertain to conservative. You know, the last few years between COVID and all the supply chain issues, asset bubbles, war, energy dependencies. I mean, it's been a, a bit of a perfect storm of economic and sociological forces and compounded by it all being in the wake of overhiring, inflated valuations, just a decade of bullishness. There's always cycles to this and the pendulum swinging back and a bit of an overcorrection seems to always be inevitable. And you know, when you see one or two layoffs happen, especially by those large companies, kind of provides PR cover for everyone else to feel like now's the time to do the same. And that band-aid's been ripped off, unfortunately. So it's Tourette. Right. To add to that, I mean, I don't, we don't want to be Debbie Downers here, but it's likely going to get worse before it's going to get better. But I do believe this is a time where the building blocks of character and creativity will emerge because I think history shows that we're resilient people, we're resilient cultures, we're resilient governments. That's a question mark. But I think resiliency will bring us back to where we need to be. But I think the coming months are going to be challenging, interesting, and humbling. Judy, just given your historical perspective, you've been through some of these cycles before. What do you think is different this time? And then maybe you could talk a little bit about how much worse you see it potentially getting. I think the biggest difference is that we had a global pandemic that changed so many things for people, but there is perspective in, you know, if we think about kind of history, I don't know, Daniel, maybe you want to talk a little bit about what we had chatted about yesterday, just as perspective on the yesterday versus today. And I think hopefully some of these realities will give people the hope that we need to embrace. I might make the argument that there's more in common with the past than there is a difference. But if I can think of one big difference compared to even the most recent recession, if I may use that word, you know, if we think back to the housing collapse, uh, 2007, 2008, nine, this time around we have Twitter. And just the way that information spreads, you know, over the years, over the past century, when layoffs happen, maybe you hear about it in the news, you read about it in the paper. Now it's, you know, the revolution's kind of televised (laughs) and everything feels 24-7. You feel the emotions of the layoffs, I think, a little bit more viscerally these days, just because individuals are posting their grief, people are mourning in public. That definitely feels different. This is not an isolated situation anymore. Social media has really allowed people to voice their fears, voice their anxieties. I think this existed before, but I think we're hearing it, like Daniel said, 24-7. And I think it's exhausting on so many levels. And yet it's also kind of beautiful to see communities come together and to try to be helpful. And so there's a double-edged sword between having that loudspeaker 24-7 on, no matter what platform you go to look at, but people are stepping up and helping each other. And because the pandemic was global, there's kind of a, 
a new level of collective empathy that I think has emerged that maybe we felt episodically in the past, or maybe it existed, but we just didn't hear about it. And I think community is such a beautiful thing. And I think that's going to be able to carry us through to the other side of the mountain that we're, we're in right now. I think it's interesting to see people openly say like, hey, I've been affected by layoffs. Some folks like come in and support in, you know, kind of softer ways of like, hey, I feel your pain and more concrete ways like, hey, I'd love to make introductions for you. Is there a like a right way and a wrong way to put yourself out there to let people know, hey, I'm looking or I've been affected by this really emotional traumatizing situation of losing a job in a difficult time. Like what's the right and wrong way to do that? I have mixed feelings about how much is being put on social media. I think there is a delicate balance of TMI, too much information. I appreciate the posts where people are just sharing that they're available for help. I'm not as clear that it's the right place to open your entire Pandora box, because I think there's a time and place for that. But I think putting yourself out there is okay. I do think that there is a little bit of a script. I'm humbled, I'm honored, I'm suffering. You know, I think some of these scripts need to go away and people need to be true and authentic. And so it's interesting. I was thinking about a candidate that had never been laid off before in her entire career. And she wasn't posting on social media up until this period of time when she lost her position at a very major company. And I said to her, I said, you know, you're posting almost every hour now about some thought leadership, something to show that you're out there and to make yourself known. And it almost is over posting because that's not what your behavior was before. And so I think it's good to share thought leadership and to be engaged in the community and to wake up. But I think you need a moderate diet in terms of how much you're posting. I'm also struck by, (laughs) reminds me of Facebook when somebody announced that they passed away, that people had a like on that posting. I'm like, why are you liking a posting where somebody passed away? And I feel like there's a lot of recruiters and hiring managers liking these postings so that they can, maybe it's, I'm glad there's a supportive emoticon, but the liking, it feels almost self-promotion. So I think we have to be careful about self-promoting and looking for attention. I think people have to find a their voice, but be sure it's not too noisy. And Probably not share too much about what happened inside the company, right? Absolutely. You know, one of the things we say often to candidates as we prepare for interviews together is that you should be positive about the future, but not negative about the past. There's that old quote, people don't remember what you say, but how you made them feel. And I believe that's very true when interviewing. You want your audience to walk away from every conversation feeling positive. You want the emotions to be aligned with your future, your success. And and so if you're talking bad about your past employer or venting out loud, people won't remember the specifics of what you said, but they will 
remember the negativity. And so being positive is for sure an important thing to be mindful of if you are going to post, if you are going to put yourself out there. And as Judy said beautifully, you know, it takes balance because having said everything we just said, it is important to put yourself out there. Being in a job search requires vulnerability. You can't, you know, hide behind a force field and cast a few lines out and hope that one of them lands. You have to be proactive and you you really do need to put yourself out there and, and expect rejection. But again, you have to balance that with what's too much. How do I stay positive? If you can't be positive in the moment, maybe that's a sign that you should take a step back, sharpen your axe, decompress a bit, (laughs) not jump straight into a job search if things are a little bit too raw still, because people will feel it. I say that a lot to people. I say, why don't you go, you know, take a week sabbatical, give yourself time. Don't jump. At least. Well, you may not have a choice, right? Your sabbatical may be a forced sabbatical. But take time to heal a little bit. And before you put yourself out there in a post soliloquy, ask yourself, is this post going to be helpful or does it belong in your journal? And I think there are places to express yourself and to think about that. Everybody needs to think about that. Is this going to be a helpful post? Will this be a productive opportunity to share something interesting. I actually think more and more people should be doing more direct messaging than they should be just posting. Otherwise, you know, let's take God bless LinkedIn. I have nothing but admiration for their ability to be here right now for people to have a workplace loudspeaker. But I think we have to have some moderation because everyone's hurting. And then it starts to be a cycle of negative energy in a platform where it can be positive. That idea of taking some time, it really resonates with me. My last job I was laid off from was a small startup, and I got the news the day after my son was born, <laughs> which was a bit wow. of a shock. Oh, boy. My second kid coming in and my job gone. So, But it ended up, you know, thankfully we had some savings. I know not everybody's in that position, but I was able to take some time and think about what do I really want to do next? And maybe one of you could talk a little bit about what are some important things to think about during that transition? What are some important things to do? How can you set yourself up for success? One thing is to start to research what opportunities are out there, right? Plain and simple, like start to do your homework, start to network through your connections, through your past colleagues, make sure your tools of the trade are in good form, be it a website, a PDF portfolio. Be clear about your narratives and your intentions. You know, just get clarity, really reflect, almost remove all the noise of what other people are doing and just say, what do I need to do? How do I need to show up? Who do I need to reach out to? Who do I want to reach out to? And take the bold step forward. But don't just jump in. Jumping in inevitably lacks a level of clarity and understanding. Time is just so important in this moment to, you know, get comfortable with your situation and then think about what's next with a level of hope and action. This is a really good point, Judy, because in a moment of crisis, our instincts are to take action. Don't just sit there, do something. Go apply to 
15 different jobs, even if they're not exactly what you want to do. So that reflection, I think, is a really key point for people. Definitely. You know, as much as one can, and obviously there are life constraints and finances to be mindful of, take a step back so that you can be deliberate and measure twice, cut once. And I, I, my view on this is and when times are good, often candidates, prospects, applicants, they go wide and shallow. They'll apply to many companies. They won't do a ton of research on each. It'll be a little bit of a numbers game. They'll have a spreadsheet where they figure out pros and cons and plus and minuses. And, you know, they'll end up with a few offers and they'll make a decision. That's not how this will work for a lot of people this time around. And instead of going wide and shallow, go deep and think of the few companies that you really care about, prepare, research, go all in. And of course, you'll have to consider safety schools, so to speak, and reach schools and the opportunities in between. But if you can, stagger it a bit so that you don't spread yourself too thin. And every opportunity that you go after, you can make it count. Because in this job search cycle, first impressions are everything. You'll only be able to apply once. And so every time you submit an application, holistically across a portfolio, your website, LinkedIn, your resume, get your narrative together, prepare your materials, and you know plot forward very methodically. Uh, because again, you only get one shot at that application in this cycle. And there's going to be a lot of other people applying. I think this is also really a truly a time of reflection for many people. And I think being able to define what your non-negotiables are, like Daniel said, don't just jump into the next thing, but really think this is a time. This is a gift of time to think about what really matters to you. You know, do you want a job that is hybrid? Do you want a job where what's most important is who you're going to learn from? Do you want a job where maybe the equity package isn't as outstanding as they have been in the past, but, you know, the work is just everything that you want to do? And, you know, where do you want to live? Who do you want your colleagues to be? How do you want, you know, your work-life balance to come together this time around? And I think it's a really important time to be thinking about these things. and. Try not to live in this abyss of fear and impulsivity, but bring in a level of patience and endurance and pragmatism. Having said that, we do think it's important that people work backwards in their search from what they want ideally. It's still a good thing to dream and have ambition and to be optimistic and in a perfect world, I don't know what that is, but <laughs> pardon the expression, but in the perfect world, there are going to be these seven things that you know you want out of this next opportunity and the four things that you know you don't want. But layering pragmatism on top of that, if you could only check one or two boxes, what would those be? If you can only get a couple things out of this next chapter, know your next job won't be your last job. So if you get a couple things out of this next chapter, there's opportunities to check future boxes later. There's probably another category of person out there that hasn't been laid off, but is maybe afraid the axe is going to fall soon, or have seen colleagues go and where something similar might happen. Maybe it's similar advice to those types of folks, but is there anything different that you'd say to them, those that are at a company where they fear they might be let go in the near future? I think the advice will be fairly similar, but luckily they aren't yet going to 
have to look for a new job in that moment. I think they need to look internally in their community and make sure to be building relationships, reaching out to the people, getting honest feedback about how they're doing, spend time with your manager, how they can improve. This is a time to like grow and learn. And I think the the whole culture of mentorship has really emerged and it's beautiful. I think this is a time to be helping other people and you will learn from that even if you have your job. So I think the rules apply. To that end, and to answer the question, don't, you know, don't put your head in the sand, right? You have a job, yes. Others are going through a tough time. Reach out to help and that might come back around to you if you find yourself in a similar position. But having said that, Judy will hate me for using a sports analogy. It'll be the only one of the day, I promise. But I, I do think it's important to play till the whistle. And what that means is you can hedge your bet a little bit. You might still have your job. You might be worried about an impending layoff. And so you might start a search. But you still have coworkers that are leaning on you. You still have customers that are relying on you. You're still out of business. You probably have equity in that company that you want to see succeed, even if you're not there anymore. And so play to the whistle. You know, it's okay to hedge your bet and be pragmatic, but don't mail it in. You know, if you feel a layoff coming, just give it all you've got until you have nothing left to give and until your last day. The other thing that I'm going to just add, and I firmly believe this, and I think this is a value for Wharton Company, and it always has been, networking should not happen episodically. Networking and engaging with the community and building your relationships and returning calls where people have graciously reached out to you for an opportunity. Don't ignore that period. Don't underestimate the value of that throughout your career for these exact moments in time when you really need it. I can think of many times where I'll have reached out to somebody and they'll be like, I don't need a recruiter. I have, I've never had to use a recruiter before. I have a job. And you know what? Those people come back 10 years later and write me and they've been laid off. And I will, you know, with love, remind them, I remember when you said you don't need a recruiter or, you know, no, thank you. Or they didn't even return the email. Now, I get people are busy. They can't return every email. But practice your habits now, but don't give those habits away when we return to some level of normalcy. This is the time to like develop those rituals, finding your community, finding your people, reaching out to people who have earnestly reached out to you with something that's worthwhile. I'm not talking about spam. I'm talking about legitimate resources that are reaching out to you. And I think this is advice for people employed and people who are unemployed. I believe firmly in strategic dialogue for the future. That is great advice. And the folks that we see making the fastest transition to new roles are the ones who have really rich networks of people that they can talk to. Or connect yourself to people with those rich networks. Yeah. Because this is going to happen again. I mean, Daniel and I were talking the other day about kind of zooming out and thinking about history and sort of this is a period where we're going to usher in new innovations and new companies and new founders. And this is going to happen. If you think about 
1906 to 1910, we had a big earthquake. Uh, 1973, we had an oil embargo. 1995, we had a dot-com bubble. Out of the bubble came Amazon. Out of the oil embargo came Microsoft. Out of the earthquake came General Motors. Out of the housing collapse in 2009 came Airbnb, Slack, Square, Uber, Venmo. So we are going to see some incredible new innovations. Network now because these new companies are going to emerge and you want to be connected to them. I don't think we expect individuals to find solace in that, but it is true. Zooming out, history has shown us that this chapter will usher in some pretty incredible innovation and generational companies. It's happened time and again, and it will happen again. (laughs) My hope during this period of time, and I think it comes, I mean, when I think back to September 11th, for instance, and the amount of people that lost their jobs and there was this deep sadness at magnitude in New York, we felt it, you know, every day for a year. But I think what came out of that was kind of a newfound reverence for humanity and the greater good. And I also think this is an opportunity to be thinking about careers that will tap into the greater good, the future of climate, the future of education, the future of medicine, the future of finance. I think there is a future in all of these categories that are going to evolve because of this period of time. And so don't just think you're going to have to go to one of the big fang companies. These smaller, mid-sized companies that are emerging are going to be huge opportunities for people to make a difference. If you think about, you know, these companies were once a baby child. They were a startup. Airbnb was once a startup. Uber was once a startup. So there's going to be all these new startups that are going to transform industry. And this we should be excited about. Absolutely. I saw someone post the other day, and I forget who posted this. I wish I could give them credit, but tough times are temporary. and It's an important thing to remind yourself that this too shall pass. <laughs> we'll return to the conversation after this quick break. Methodical crafts coffee and tea for people of all kinds. They've been around and roasting for more than eight years and they are certified coffee nerds. On their site, you'll find useful brewing guides that'll teach you how to turn your coffee brewing chore into a beloved ritual and really dial in that perfect cup. I'm a longtime subscriber to the Roaster's Choice subscription and start every day with a cup of methodical coffee. I have to say, without fail, every morning when I wake up, I am excited to drink their coffee because it is fantastic. Methodical's packaging, their website, the entire experience, it's just beautifully designed. Craft a cup that you'll love with Methodical Coffee by visiting methodicalcoffee.com and use our discount code DESIGNBETTER to get 10% off your first order of coffee or tea. That's methodicalcoffee.com. I've got two young kids who can be a little bit on the noisy side, so my wife and I have gotten used to using closed captions on those rare occasions when we get a chance to sit down and watch a show together. Lots of us have experienced the benefits of products that were initially designed for people with disabilities, from closed captions to dark mode on your phone or laptop to -to voice-to-text to electric toothbrushes. Designing products for all people, regardless of abilities, leads to greater adaptability, usability, customization, 
and personalization. With 1 billion people worldwide living with disabilities, Fable Engage helps UX teams collect feedback from people with disabilities to help you build more accessible products. Fable Upskill provides custom accessibility training for digital teams to gain skills to build inclusive products. The best digital teams like Shopify, Microsoft, and Spotify partner with Fable to make better products for everyone. We're big fans of Fable, and we know you will be too. Learn more by requesting a demo at www.makeitfable.com slash designbetter. That's www.makeitfable.com slash designbetter. I'm the sort of person that's always looking for a life hack to live a healthier, more fulfilling life. One thing I've stumbled upon recently is Athletic Greens and their daily supplement called AG1. I start every morning with AG1 in eight ounces of water. It's got all the vitamins and minerals I need to just be healthy and keep my immune system tuned up. Also has prebiotics and probiotics. It's good for gut health. It just makes me feel great, and it's a good habit to start every morning. Certainly better than taking a whole bunch of vitamin pills that can upset my stomach. I'm a big fan of AG1, and I think it's worth checking out. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com designbetter. That's athleticgreens.com slash design better to live your best life. Check it out. And now back to the show. So as people are on their search looking for their next role, do you have advice about their strategy? So there's one approach, which is to apply. Like there's a job posting and you just apply the normal way that most folks do. And LinkedIn will show you there's like, you know, 287 people who have applied for this thing. You're going through like an HR department or find who is the hiring manager, like kind of backdoor it, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But what's the best strategy for getting noticed? Well, uh, you definitely alluded to one of them. When I think about submitting an application, to me, an application is inclusive of both the apply button on a career page, sure. That box should be checked, but you should also figure out who the hiring manager is and email them. You can figure out who your first degree connections are at a company and push for an intro, push for a referral. All of these things together, holistically, that's an application. Everything you can do, no stone unturned, that's your application to a company. Just applying to a career page, to me, that's a small part of an application. And it's the smallest part because as we know, it can be black holes right? It's, it's a lot of resumes to review by people who are not necessarily tapped into the nuances of, of the work or the disciplines of the people submitting these applications. Hiring managers are, well, they're busy. <laughs> uh, they're trying to screen these resumes in between meetings and business challenges. And if you just submit an application, you're letting fate decide. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I think using your network is probably, honestly, your network can include an HR person, it can include a recruiter, but it will it should include the people that you know that can vouch for you. So I think when you can use your network, you should try to do that. I think there are postings that are worthy of applying to, as Daniel says, but 
you know, God bless the HR manager. They don't always know how to read a CV between the lines to know that this person might be qualified. And a hiring manager is more skilled and nimble to say, oh, he doesn't check this box, but oh my gosh, look what he's done in his past. So I think making sure you're telling your story, your LinkedIn is your new resume. Resumes in and of itself are not enough anymore. Your LinkedIn profile should be clear. It should have the right keywords. It should be well articulated. It shouldn't be a one-liner. Don't assume people know what the company is unless it's an obvious big company. Get your story right. Then go and network. Don't network and then get your story right. Again, it goes back to the impulsivity of just apply, apply, apply. Step back. Do I know what I stand for? Do I know what I did at job A, B, C, D? Get that right and then start to network. People experience your personal brand across a variety of services and touch points. And you want to think about your personal brand as you would your company's brand or product marketing, right? You want to make sure that every touch point is dialed in holistically. And to do that, you got to know who you are and what you want. Having gone through the interview process years ago, one thing still sticks with me, and you know, this is over the course of you know several different jobs, but there's a lot of humiliation, I think, when you're looking for a job. And certainly when you've had an interview and then you hear nothing back, I think that's often the worst. <laughs> because you don't know what what did I do right, what did I do wrong. Do either of you have any advice for people who find themselves in that situation, how to kind of push past that and, and what learnings to take away? Let me speak up by saying you're gonna sometimes not get feedback. It's just the reality. And sometimes it's not about ill intention on the other side, but just pure overload and time. Or it could be a legality. Some companies are not really allowed to give that feedback. It doesn't hurt to ask. Ask for what you want. Find a way to say, what can I learn from this experience? Do you have just a sentence or two They may not be able to get on the phone with you, but they might be able to give you like a word of wisdom that will help propel you forward. Now more than ever too, the HR departments are the ones sometimes giving that feedback because of legalities and they're overwhelmed. Their departments have shrunk tremendously. So it's a couple of things. One, people don't know how to give feedback. That's real. And they don't know how to tell you honestly what you need to know. Whenever we can, and at least in our role, we try to leave somebody with something, you know, but we're not going to make it up. Don't make shit up, right? Excuse the expression. And it may be left to you to figure out what do you think you did well in that process? What would you have done differently? Maybe one of the people on the panel you made a nice rapport with, maybe you could reach out. Is there anything that I can learn from this? But it's tough to get good constructive feedback in a timely way. And that is just the reality, sadly. And more and more because people are overwhelmed. People are tired. People are scared to like get feedback and somebody's posting it on LinkedIn. Oh, you know, can you believe that they told me this? Like there's fear in sharing honesty. I think there needs to be more of it. And I think we have to cultivate a way for it to happen but I don't think it's going to happen in the way that most people wish it would. What goes into an effective portfolio? (laughs) Besides time? (laughs) Definitely a lot of time. That's for sure. (laughs) 
you know, it's a hard question, Aaron, to unpack quickly. Like a lot of the themes we've touched upon, time, preparation, being methodical, being strategic, asking for help. A lot of people think that putting your portfolio together is like a single player game. You know, you should lean on your personal board of advisors, your mentors, your coaches, there's a difference, your recruiters, your friends, your contemporaries, get feedback, ask for help. You don't have to do it alone. I was talking with someone recently about, you know, how, how do I inject polish and craft and visual delight into my portfolio? That's not my strength as a design leader. This being a team project and you interviewing for a leadership role in, in this candidate's case, one contrarian or counterintuitive thing you could do is actually go contract a visual designer to help you with your portfolio. It's a project that you're bringing people in to help with. It's a person, a talent that you've recruited and contract and guided in pursuit of a solution. That's a proxy signal for your abilities as a leader in and of itself. You don't have to navigate your portfolio alone and you can play to your strengths and recruit and contract to fill the gaps, your opportunities for growth. I won't use the word weaknesses. And you can make your portfolio a case study in and of itself. You don't have to do it alone. But there is a basic structure in terms of your portfolio, which is who are you? What do you care about? Provide a couple of case studies, go deep have an appendix that shows kind of the depth and range so that maybe that was one of the cases you didn't pick. Maybe the appendix appeals to one of the hiring managers because, you know, there's a shared passion there on whatever that project was about. So needs to be well-structured, organized, spell-checked, get a third-party reader. How does it resonate for the other person? Like Daniel said, your portfolio should not be a solo sport. It really does need to be a collective project because you're trying to tell your story and you are so caught up in your own story in a way that having a third party be able to look at it. We spend a tremendous amount of time with the candidates that we represent to help them retool their portfolio. We've actually put together, you know, a guide that really gives out, you know, what your resume format should be, how you tell your story, you know, from chapter to chapter, how you end the portfolio. It needs to emanate who you are and it needs to be authentic and it needs to be well-organized and well-designed and decide what really needs to be in there. Again, what belongs under your bed in your box of archives and what belongs in a document that is going to go out to many people to be seen. And we genuinely believe this is true, no matter the level that you are at in your career. Right out of school, 20 years in, a portfolio is a really powerful piece of your application because it's your best opportunity to tell a story and to control the narrative and to get your story arc across to the audience in a way that is calculated. You know, if you just have a website showcase of kind of high fidelity projects, and you send that to a recruiter or a hiring manager, you don't know what they're going to click on first. You don't know what rabbit hole they're going to go down next. You don't know what judgments they're going to make. If you have a portfolio that you present, whether asynchronous or live, you can tell the story you want people to hear. And that is unique to your portfolio. No other artifact in your application is going to have that same power. That's an interesting point. And I have seen some people recently who have like a public portfolio website and then they build a, a deck as well that's like for all those 
Zoom calls, interviews, where they can walk through. Do you see that as like a common piece tool in the modern job hunt? Yeah, for sure. The website showcases, it's, it's awesome. It's a great place for hiring managers and recruiters to peruse. And, you know, it gives people a feel for your aesthetic and some of the projects you've worked on. But it's quite different than a story, your story. And again, you want to be able to control the audience a bit. You want to dictate what their thoughts and feelings are. You want to get a handful of points that you've curated across. A website won't do that as effectively as a presentation. We actually have a guide very specific to presenting. And I think, as Daniel said, it needs to be a story. And you have to also understand what role you're applying for. So if you are applying for a leader of leaders position, you need to build in your portfolio. You know, what does leadership look like? Who are your cross-functional partners? Who do you report into? What's been your focus on DEI? And what have you done there to promote diversity and inclusion in your hiring practice? If it's a creative director of brand and the articulation of craft and expression is really important, you'd better make sure that your curring is right in your portfolio because people are going to be paying attention to that. If it's a role that you're reporting into the CEO, you need to show how you've thought about strategy and vision. And then how does that drill down into how you build your organization? Some people can't show the work that it might be under NDA. So how do you talk about the work through story? And I think the storytelling piece is key. How do you engage? Like when you go through a magazine that you love, why do you love it? Because there's hierarchy of information, there's visuals, there's headlines. Hopefully if it's a well-designed magazine, you can really get a feel for what that issue is about. And I think there's no difference between designing a magazine issue for a month and telling your story over a period of time. I'll just add maybe one or two things. Judy, you might echo this. The higher up you get in terms of leadership and management, you know, showcasing products that you've shipped and process, important, definitely. But what's equally important to products in your portfolio are people. You built teams, you managed teams, you worked cross-functionally, you've brought creative people together to solve business problems. That is what your role is predominantly as a leader, even more so than what features did you ship, what metrics did you move? Although metrics are important, right? People yeah. appreciate metrics. Equally so, for sure. We're appreciative that putting a portfolio together is like a daunting time-consuming task. It's brutal. It's just brutal. Yeah. It is brutal. It is really hard. So to what you asked earlier, what can people who are in jobs do as they think about what it might be like to be laid off? A lot of people are like, yeah, I don't have a portfolio. I've never needed one. I've never had to apply. I've gotten every job through first degree connections. Maybe put together like a component library of case studies and just keep that somewhat up to date throughout your career. So when the time comes where you need it, you have the Lego pieces. Absolutely. Everyone needs to have a portfolio. I mean, in some way you should be documenting your journey professionally, personally. Like I'm a big journaler. I'm a big collector. So I guess it's easier said than done, but try to be intentional about what you might need tomorrow and build that today. One more question before we wrap. So 
this one's a little topical. Uh, so in New York and now California, there's been laws passed around salary transparency. And I'm curious, you know, what do you guys think about that? How does that affect somebody who's searching right now as far as you know, negotiation, that type of thing that maybe was different before when salaries weren't as transparent? Yeah, you know, sentimentally, I'm, I think it's a, a good thing. Transparency is it's a good thing. Obviously, equitability across levels, it's a good thing. Having said that, having worked on the inside of startups for, for many years, the one thing I will say, and maybe this is a contrarian, I don't want to be contrarian take, I don't want to be too controversial, is a lot of these rules and laws were written with larger companies in mind. They're not well designed for smaller startups. That's just the truth of it. It actually makes it harder for smaller startups to compete with larger companies, some of these regulations. And, you know, there's that old trope that regulation stifles innovation. This is actually a real world example of that in some cases. Sentimentally, I'm all in favor for it, but the rules are not as nuanced as the reality. And that's just a, a truth across almost everything. But in this case, I've felt that I've worked through those challenges at startups before. And if you're competing with large companies, you know, how do you be transparent when the majority of your compensation package is equity? How do you tell a story about equity, you know, if you just put a couple bullet points on a job description? It's hard for startups to take the same approach as large companies when it comes to compensation. Again, it's nuanced. You could spend another hour on this subject, so I won't devolve into a TED Talk, but <laughs> those are some of my thoughts on it. I just wanted to ask real quick, both of you alluded to multiple guides for portfolios and presentations and so forth. Are those public yeah. somewhere where listeners can find those? Actually, we've posted them on um, the Wharton Company LinkedIn page. We've posted it when a number of layoffs have happened. Obviously, we can't speak to everybody that contacts us and our emails are overflowing. So it is, you know, as you can imagine, it's a busy time for us and we want to try to help people. So we did put together these guides and we have posted them on LinkedIn so you can access them there or you can write us at info at wordco.com and we'll be happy to send it to you. There are some materials that we don't circulate publicly, but absolutely, as Judy said, reach out. We're here to help. Yeah. And I think, you know, in closing, from my perspective, and I feel like maybe I'm being redundant, but if people can just take away all the angst and the worry and the concern that they're going to be stuck in this position forever, or they're about to lose their job and they're going to be stuck in this position, is these are themes to hold on to. Make a note card, put it in front of your computer, make it out of sticky this is life, right? Work is life. Life is work. But be proactive always. Be patient and trust time. Remain vulnerable in a way that allows you to hear and listen. Take time to decompress and a walk in the park, a ride on your bike. Ask for help. If you have the time now, use it. While you're getting all your materials together, just Stay centered, stay trusting, and time heals. We know that. Sounds like it's a corny expression, but gosh, I've learned over my decades of life and work that time heals, and this too shall pass. Fantastic. Judy, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks again 
for your level of support. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetter.com podcast. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.